Well, throughout the Bible, there definitely are a number of passages that make us squirm. There are some passages that, frankly, we prefer were not there. Just before the service, as the elders and I were praying, uh, we kind of discussed how this is one of those passages that makes us uncomfortable because as Christians, we love proclaiming the, the extensiveness and the expansiveness of Christ's forgiveness. And so when we come upon these kinds of passages, it's tempting to feel almost embarrassed by them, as if this is the little, little asterisk at the end of the paragraph, or this is the little caveat that, that threatens, in one sense, to undermine everything we've been saying about the, the, the uttermost forgiveness that Christ affords us. And so it makes us feel uncomfortable. But yet our job as students of the Word is to come to God's Word and to study it earnestly and to allow ourselves and our system to be shaped by the Word rather than to reject passages outright because they don't conform to what we expect and what we desire. Incidentally, I want you to remember that little thought right there because it plays back in in the future, and you're going to see in a few minutes. But the passage before us, as we look at it, all of the scholars agree that this is sort of a sandwich passage, how it sort of begins and ends with Jesus' family. And in the middle, you have the issue with the Pharisees and the religious leaders coming and the whole question of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit but the way we are when we read this passage, we just focus on that issue. We see Jesus talking about an eternal sin and there never being forgiveness. And it kind of pushes everything to the periphery. Everything else in this passage kind of goes out of focus and becomes a blur as we focus on those words. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is it possible to commit it? What does it mean? never having forgiveness. What, what is it all saying? And so we can forget that everything that is said is said for a reason. And oftentimes, the best way to understand something is to look at its context. I would suggest to you that uh, this passage highlights in a very crucial topic for Christians. The idea that there is there is something known as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all attest to it. And it's a big deal. So what do we do? In fact, I think as Christians, we're so drawn to these kind of passages because we find God's grace hard to believe. We find it natural and easy to believe that God would be quick to push us aside. And so our approach to these kinds of passages is to fear that perhaps I've done it. As if the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin or whatever is this thing kind of like speeding, how you're driving down the road, you get distracted for a minute, and next thing you know you're going a little over. Oops, I, have I committed it? Have I accidentally committed the blasphemy? Of, am I out? We find it easy to believe that God is a strict taskmaster, taskmaster who, as soon as you do something like this, might be quick to put you on the list of the excluded. 
But we have to understand that God's grace and his forbearance are extensive. And so even when you have a hard passage like this, it's important that we remember that Jesus is never, ever talking about just a one little event you do and all of a sudden you're out. So for example, in another passage, Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, uh, no, I'm sorry, 10.33, Jesus says, Whoever denies me before man, I will deny before my Father. Simple statement, right? So does that mean that if I deny Jesus one time, that I'm out? Is, is that what it means? Well, what about Peter and his threefold denials? No, Peter repents and he's reinstated. It's not that Jesus is not being serious when he makes the statement. But because God's disposition is one of graciousness and forbearance and being slow to anger, we got to understand that when there's a warning like this, he's not talking about some little thing you may accidentally do in a moment of passion and you're forever blackballed. He's slow to anger. And he's talking about something that persists and represents a committed, settled attitude. So, even though that's the case, my own ministry has borne out what tends to be a common trend. Christians routinely struggle with fears that perhaps they have done something bad enough. That perhaps something they said, perhaps something they did, maybe even in college they walked away from the faith for a little bit. Does that mean I'm forever shut out? Christians struggle with that. And in fact, maybe some of you struggle with that. And if you do, perhaps everything that's transpired in your life since then, whenever something bad happens, you probably interpret that as a sign that God is out to get you or that God has set himself against you. But this is not unique to you. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress in another work, in another word, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. He talks about how he struggled with an intense depression for two years because he was sure that he had accidentally committed the unpardonable sin. Martin Luther, John Calvin, in their ministry, they both were reaching out to people, trying to help them understand this because people struggle with it. And unfortunately, the Christian church's history is potmarked by people who have unfortunately committed suicide, thinking that they had become unforgivable by committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, the terrible reality is that there is such a thing as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But the terrible tragedy is that the very people who need to be comforted only feel condemned. You see, it may sound like a cliche, but I hope that you'll understand very shortly that there's a lot of truth to the notion that if you are concerned about having committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then you haven't committed it. So, be comforted. There is such a thing, so be warned. But if you're concerned about it right now, I want you to know that at least yet you haven't committed it, okay? Now this passage 
this passage is meant to give us the larger context of a response to Jesus. And if we're going to understand who or what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, we've got to understand the context. Context is key to everything. Now, in this passage, what we have uh, is, is the, three, the three common responses to Jesus. And C.S. Lewis, in his radio addresses in the early 40s, famously used the alliteration of lunatic, liar, or Lord. Because you see the three responses here. You have his family thinking that he's out of his mind. You have the religious leaders saying that he's a, he, he's, he's a liar, he's a deceiver. And then you have the opinion of Jesus himself, Mark the author and his disciples, that Jesus is Lord and worthy of following. So the question before you is, what do you do with all you've seen, with all you've heard? How do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus and so, in this message, I think we see th- a couple things. Based upon how you respond to Jesus, you've got a warning and you've got a consolation. We all have to do something about Jesus. Every single one of us has to answer the question, who is Jesus? And there are some, there are some who are so opposed that they eventually run the risk of committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But first, a common response is to say that this talk of Jesus is crazy talk. Or that Jesus is a lunatic. Or that Christianity is ridiculous. Or whatever. And that's the view we see espoused by Jesus' own family in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, which is the expression used for later on when the the religious leaders go to arrest Jesus. So they're going to take him by force. I mean, come on, Jesus, let's go home now. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Okay? Jesus' family at this time did not believe in him. In fact, in John 7, we're told explicitly that his own family did not believe in him. But it's important also to see that his family had not been privy to his miracles and message. If you read carefully here, his family comes in light of hearing the hubbub he makes, but they're not watching him do it. Where does his family live? Nazareth. Jesus, when he does go home to Nazareth and he teaches, remember that's the one place where he, and we don't like, this is a hard passage too, but it says he couldn't do many miracles because of their lack of faith there. So even in their hometown, they didn't really get to see many of the miracles of Jesus. So basically then, what we see is the family is hearing secondhand all these audacious claims and things that's going on. And so there's a, they're operating out of a basic level of ignorance. And their familiarity growing up with Jesus made it such that it was hard for them to cognitively conceive that this guy here, this, this kid I grew up with, my brother, what do you mean he's the Savior of the world? What do you mean he's the Son of God? I grew up with him. There was a basic level of ignorance 
And they weren't in on his ministry. And that resulted in them coming away with the notion that he's crazy. This is crazy. Now, I would suggest to you that most of the people who are opposed to Jesus actually fall into this category. They speak out of ignorance. Even intense opposition can be due to their ignorance. In fact, Paul says as much in 1 Timothy that he was an opposer of the truth, but he found grace. Why? Because he acted in ignorance. So even though he had some knowledge, it was still considered ignorance. And so when it comes to committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what we have to rule out immediately are the acts of unbelief, even the really bad things a person can say or do that are ultimately chalked up to ignorance. So for example, you have these idiot, atheist 20-year-olds who love to get on Facebook or, or, or YouTube and post videos of themselves looking into the camera saying, I deny the Holy Spirit. That's just stupid. These guys are like the Roman soldiers making sport of crucifying Jesus. Doing a bad thing, but at the end of the day, as Jesus says, they know not what they do. Okay? So there's a whole lot of people whose operational posture is one of ignorance. And people who are ignorant do really stupid things. But it's ignorant. And as a result, there is hope. There is hope. So you may look at someone who's making these vile, profane statements, living debauched, horrible life. You may have ISIS people murdering. They're ignorant. And as a result, there is hope. So the second perspective that one can have toward Jesus, however, is that he is a liar, that he's a deceiver. And this was the opinion that was reached by the majority of the religious leaders of his day, the, the official party line. And we see this in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Okay, so before this point, Jesus had been interacting with the religious leaders in the local towns. So the local guys. But now, there's a delegation that's come down from Jerusalem. The government has come, in, come down, and this is the party, the party bigwigs have spoken. Okay? And they've issued their bottom line. Now, it is certainly true that not every religious leader rejects Jesus. We have Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus. We have Joseph of Arimathea. There, there, there's a few. But by and large, this is the party line, and it's true that most of them bought into the party line. But I want to point out that there's a fundamental difference between the people like his family who acted in ignorance and these religious leaders. What do I mean? Look at every story where he's eating and feasting with sinners and tax collectors. Who's criticizing him for it? The religious leaders. How do they know he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and why are they? Because they're there. These religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus have been around his ministry since day one. 
They've sat under His teaching. They have eaten and drank with Him. They have heard the message. They have seen with their own eyes the demons come screaming out of people. They have seen people healed. They have seen lives changed. They have seen, they have heard, they have had intimate access at the dinner table repeatedly. And their conclusion is not, Jesus is a fraud, man. This, this isn't legit. You know, he, he's just an illusionist who's staging things. Did you know that no one ever accused Jesus of being an illusionist? They don't say, oh, what Jesus says is good for them, but not for me. Uh, I'm, my life is just fine, thank you very much. I'm okay. They don't say any of that. What they do say is that Jesus is actually doing something here. So they do not deny his power. They recognize and they grant his power. But their sin is so precious to them. And their preconceived notion of what right looks like, their system is so in place that they are so opposed to it being challenged and they're so opposed to their heart being convicted that faced with evidence and faced with circumstances and faced with experiences that they cannot deny, they instead say Jesus is evil. And that Jesus is powerful, but he's an agent of the devil. So precious to them was their place and their view that they absolutely, categorically, fundamentally looked at evidence they could not deny and said, this is an evil thing. And so, when they do this, Jesus then responds. And I think right here, folks, is evidence that Jesus is issuing them a warning rather than passing verdict. What I believe has happened right here is that they have crept ever closer to this line, this line that can't be undone once you've crossed it. And so Jesus says, you know what, come here. And he gives them two illustrations. He speaks to them in parables. And, and the, the word parable in Greek is just a broad category that refers to, to an illustration, a simile, a metaphor, a, a story with a point, whatever. But he's taught, he gives the first one, that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Now, imagine the ridiculousness of, of an army being drawn up against itself. And we understand that in real life war, friendly fire occurs. We try to mitigate against it, but it happens. But imagine, if you will, that this half of the army suddenly pivots and turns and starts attacking its own line intentionally. What, what kind of ruler would, would, would do that to, to destroy his own kingdom? Who, what kind of a general, or what, time of, what, time of a, what type of a king would set his own armies and launch his own catapults against his own castles? It's ridiculous. So, Folks, you know, to use, a, a, it's, I mean, it seemed like the gates, like, like, it seemed like all, you know, what was breaking loose? I mean, demons are being cast out of people. I mean, it's, it's going crazy. And Jesus is like, 
You really think that the devil is destroying his own kingdom? That doesn't even make sense. But you have to explain what's happening some way. And so he uses the second analogy. You can't bust into a house and plunder it without tying up the strong man. And once you've, once you've subdued the strong man, then you're free to plunder his house. And so in this analogy then, the devil is the strong man who guards his possessions. And Jesus, in order to plunder his kingdom or his house, has to subdue the strong man. So Jesus has saying that he's bound the strong man. And he's now plundering his possessions by freeing people who were subjugated to the devil. And so I believe that he's giving these warnings because he understands that the religious leaders are, are heading down a trajectory of unbelief. I do not believe that as of yet they had actually crossed that line because he bothers to try to convince them of the folly of their way. Now later, later, right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, he does the famous, he gives these famous woes to the religious leader and he passes verdict at that point. Where now, there's nothing left for you but destruction. And he says as much. But here, he is so slow to want to push people out that he gives them even now warning. So understand that this trajectory that they've been on, these religious leaders, has been slow from the beginning, but it gradually builds up. And in there, there is a warning for us. You have got to pull back. You have got to beware of the seeds of unbelief. The seeds of disbelief, the seeds of unbelief won't just stop with, with a few questions. Doubt and antagonism grows and grows and grows. Sin in the Bible is revealed as having a very calcifying, hardening, deadening effect. Sin does not make you more sensitive. It kills your nerve endings. It kills your conscience so that way you don't feel anymore. And Jesus is saying, be careful. You guys are dangerously close to crossing that line of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he uses that expression because who is the one who has endowed Jesus with the power to do his ministry? The Holy Spirit. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To convict and to convert and so the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives is that convicting voice that seeks to cause us to recognize the sinfulness of our situation and the reality of Christ. But what happens once someone, with all their familiarity, with all their access, with all their evidences, they look at this stuff and they say, you know what, not only do I just not think it's for me, it is a bad thing. Once you've reached that point where you have spit in the face of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then will cease His convicting ministry in your life. And you will be handed over to your own heart. And the reason why it's an unforgivable sin is because without the Holy Spirit bringing repentance to you, you just happily go your way. And you're just like a pig in slop wallowing in it. 
until judgment comes. It's not that you're sitting there recognizing you did something bad and you're just pleading for forgiveness and he just, no, <laughs> no. The effect of having done this is the Holy Spirit backs off and you're left to your own devices, to your own hard heart. And so like the Pharisees, you sleep with a clean conscience. You sleep peaceful, confusing the the lack of, of prick in your soul with, with a clean when really it's just cauterized. And so you don't have forgiveness because there's no Holy Spirit operating in you to bring you to repentance, which is the prerequisite to forgiveness. So, don't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's easy to look at this and say, oh, this was written to those mean old nasty Pharisees. Because they were bad. Well, remember, this letter was written to Christians. And the reality is, is that throughout the whole Bible, there's lots of these warnings. And this passage itself finds echoes in Hebrews 6. So if you would turn with me real quick to Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, we'll see the echoes of this passage as it applies to Christians. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Do you see how the situation regarding the people in Hebrews 6 is kind of like what the Pharisees had access? They had access. They had exposure. They had participation. Now imagine this, if you will. Imagine someone in the church of the first century. They've been subjected probably to the ministry of the apostles. They've seen the miracles. Perhaps they're like some of the people in Matthew 7. They've even prophesied. Perhaps they've even cast out demons. They have seen and felt and experienced all this stuff. They have wonderful, intimate, first-hand knowledge. And at the end of it, they still say, this is a bad thing. And they leave it. What's left? What's left? One of the scary truths of the New Testament is just how close one can come to the kingdom and still not be inside it. You can be so close as to share in the Spirit, to taste the divine things, to receive the sacraments, to, in the words of Jesus, prophesy in His name and cast out demons and do mighty works in His name. How can it be that the Bible tells us no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit and then have Jesus say, no one who, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Scary stuff. But we have to understand that this is being written to a people. And there is a distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. You may remember this from the new members class. And as a people, it is mixed with folks 
And there are people, wheat, and there are tares. There are people in our midst who are claiming the name of Christ who perhaps don't receive Jesus as Lord and don't bow before Him. I don't know who you are, but these passages are a warning of what will happen to those who spurn the Holy Spirit. But what about for the rest of us? Is this just something I can ignore? No, we believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints. And what that means is, I am kept by the grace of God. And so I look at a passage like this, and I think, whoa, I don't want to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to root out the seeds of disbelief in my life. Meanwhile, it's the Holy Spirit working in me to will and work for His good purpose. So the rooting out, the resisting the unbelief, the resisting the walking away, all that stuff comes from the Holy Spirit working in me precisely because I don't want to do that. If you are amongst the elect, you are preserved. But you know you're amongst the elect because you persevere. This passage is not talking about people who do a bad thing. It's not saying that when you were in high school and you tried, or you were in college and you tried drugs, that you're out. It's not saying that you, know, you played with a Ouija board when you were in eighth grade and now you're done. It's not saying uh, that you committed adultery, so you're through. It's not saying that you murdered someone and so you're out. It's not saying suicide. It's saying, if you have been exposed to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, and if you are faced with evidence that you know to be true, and if you're intelligent and informed and insistent rejection of it all as being not only just not for you, but as actively bad, because it so convicts you in a way that you just refuse to be convicted. You have undermined the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you just accidentally do. It's not something that in a rash moment you do. Think about Peter. He's a great example. He denies Jesus three times. Now, it's not good that he denied Jesus, but in a, in, in a moment, he was scared. He, 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 he was frightened. He was discombobulated, and so he acted rashly. Now, he will give accounting for every loose word, and he did give an accounting. But he was restored precisely because it was, it was not his deep, informed, settled position. Now, that's the warning. Don't commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But the consolation is found in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, and in this right here, the Greek, this is a formulation that only Jesus says. He, he begins these authoritative statements in the Greek by saying, Amen, I say to you. Only Jesus talks this way because he's talking as the lawgiver. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man 
and whatever blasphemies they utter. Just think about that. We so quickly jump to verse 29 because we're scared. But if you're his child, he wants you to understand there is indeed grace abounding for even the most egregious of your sins. I think of Paul, who in his word, he said in his letter to the to, to his disciple Timothy, writes that he was a blasphemer. How much more blasphemy can you get than persecuting the church, right? But he found grace. So what have you done? What have you done? What have you said? Understand that it falls under the category of verse 28. It can be forgiven because the Holy Spirit is working and drawing you. But if you have the seeds of disbelief in your life, root them out and heed the warning of verse 29 to 32. Heed the warning and root them out. Tear them out. Flee to Jesus. Because understand that if left to itself, the sinfulness in your heart will kill you. So flee to Jesus. This is what this passage is trying to do. Religious leaders, I love you. You are walking dangerously close to the precipice. Turn while you still can before you cross that line. If Jesus has this much grace for his opponents, how much more does he have for his beloved children? Brothers and sisters, rest secure. If you worry about the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, you haven't committed. But if you find in your heart this cold numbness where you just don't even care, and perhaps the only reason you're coming here is because of social considerations that you want, have every reason to fear. But today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of grace. If you hear my voice, Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants to receive you into his family. And that's what he concludes with here. He's not dissing his mom and his brothers. He's making a point that the people who are closest to him are the ones who are united to him by faith. So this is you if you hear his voice. If you hear his voice and respond to him, then you are as his brother or sister. You are his precious family member. And he has all the grace in the universe for you. So flee to Jesus, root out the sin, rest in him, and know that if you worry about it, you haven't committed it. All right? Let's pray.